Bismillahirrahmanirrahim ve sallallahu ala seyyidina Muhammedin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Peace and love, beautiful people. It's Brother Ali. Thank you so much for coming back to the Travelers Podcast week after week after week. It really means a lot to me. I'm grateful to you. I'm grateful for you. We really are co-travelers in the journey of life. It's a short time from the womb to the tomb. And we're dealing with ourselves, we're dealing with the human condition, we're dealing with the condition of the world as it is. And we're trying to live in a way that's intentional and beautiful and loving and positive and constructive. We want to be people that live lives of meaning. We want it to mean something. Um, and so sharing our experiences with other people in whatever ways that we can is really valuable. And the wisdom that we gain from each other, the perspective we get on life, the perspective we get on, gain of ourselves from talking to other people, it really matters and it's really, really valuable. And it's one of the things that I think is a really great use of time to connect, for hearts to connect, for minds to connect, for bodies to connect, for spirits to connect, for us to just see our reflections in one another is a really beautiful thing, you know. It's it's part of the spiritual practice, honestly. So grateful to you and for you for being here, for being committed. We've had a really amazing ride. I'm really grateful for the conversation we had last last week with speech from Arrested Development. That's somebody I've always wanted to connect with and talk to. Uh, Vinny Paz, you know, that episode, we got a lot of amazing feedback on that episode because of the fact that Vinny just showed up so beautifully and genuinely and authentically and really just poured his heart out, man. And it really taught us all, gave us all a course, like gave us a lesson in how to be reflective And it's very, very beautiful, you know. Um, we had two full episodes with Merce. We had two full episodes with Slug. Had an amazing conversation with Ilhan Omar. Had an amazing conversation with Jane Elliott, uh, the OG white anti-racist anti-educator who threatened to beat me and threatened to jump my bones all in the same conversation. Super dope. We had a beautiful conversation on this podcast with... Cornell West and with um, Chuck D. You know, it's just been an amazing ride, and we have a lot of incredible guests to come. This week, I'm talking to one of the just, one of the people that I love in the world, you know, that I'm just so grateful that I'm in the world with him. He's just one of the dopest, most authentic, real, genuine, just cool uh, people that I know that's really educational for me. My relationship with him is really... Um, healing for me. Um, our brother Shane, uh, Shane Atkinson. Uh, I, I was about to say Chaplain Shane, and then I just said Shane. Some of us know him as Imam Shane uh, because he's a, he is a leader and an educator in the Muslim community. Some of us know him as Chaplain Shane because he's worked in uh, schools and in hospitals as a chaplain. You know, he's a therapist. He's somebody who. Uh, you know, just sits with people, especially in our times of need, and really reflects with us. But Shane's story is so ill because of the fact that he grew up as a white kid, a white guy in Mississippi. Um, you know, you'll hear him talk a little bit about his story. But there's a documentary made about him called Redneck Muslim. You know, Shane comes from Mississippi. His grandfather, he describes as a really beautiful, soft, kind person who also taught him how to tie a noose and also told him, I know where the bodies of the civil rights workers are buried. The FBI thinks they know, but they're wrong. I know where they really are. You know, and then Shane growing up in hip hop, 
who ends up, you know, uh, becoming a Muslim, who's the first one in his family to go to integrated schools. Shane is a few years older than me. I was, he was born in 1970. I was born in 77. And so he lives this amazing life and ends up having a physical altercation with his grandfather and arrives at this place where he sees that this beautiful gift that we've been given of Islam, this spiritual tradition that's emergent, that's holistic, that's embodied, um, that has what he calls the medicine of metaphysics. The, you know, Islam is just a beautiful religion. It's really amazing. And the people that live it and experience it and benefit from it can tell you that it's all of the healing for all, the entirety of the human condition is all there. Physical, psychological, spiritual, emotional, um, political, you know, family, healing for our families, healing for society, healing for our group dynamics. The answers to the race uh, problems and questions are there. The answers to economic problems are there, you know, and they look different for different people in different times. It's also a universal tradition that's living and breathing. You know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily the case that uh, things are just set in stone and that this religion has to be lived any one particular way. But so Shane is somebody who came through hip hop music like me, discovered Malcolm X like me, became a Muslim like me, and then came full circle like me, but before me, to this space where, you know, we had an amazing episode on this podcast. We talked to Rez Mominican, um, you know, a trauma specialist, racialized trauma specialist, my personal and family therapist, about the, the, what it means for white people to really sit with themselves and figure out and, and to really be real about the, the traumas that we inherit and the, the ways that our lineage shows up in our own reality and in our bodies, you know, and to sit with that and to work on that and to deal with that and then to do it with other white people in a way that creates culture. One of the things that Resma Minikin was so, go back and listen to that episode and just check out everything that he does and his books and his lectures and his trainings and his uh, thoughts that he shares on social media and interviews and things like that. But he basically says, you know, I know a lot of great white people, a lot of white individuals that I feel good about. But in terms of group spaces, in terms of creating culture, and in, in terms of, you know, building a culture that becomes an option for anti-racist people that actually changes uh, the way that life is lived and the way that bodies are received and that life is understood um, in the world. You know, this is the work of white people to do. And Shane is somebody that I, when I first met him, he was already understanding that and already coming at it from that perspective. And so he's been somebody over the years that I just really confide in a lot. Um, he's like an elder brother to me. You know, he's seen me, you know, make mistakes. He's seen me, you know, veer off the path and come back. And he's always been really beautiful with me. He's always been really caring and patient and gracious and understanding and encouraging and merciful. So, you know, You'll hear also in this in this interview that, and it's and it's also in the documentary, the documentary film about Brother Shane, uh, redneck Muslim. It's it's not long, and it's really amazing to watch. He just so happens to be wearing a Brother Ali T-shirt in a lot of it. Um, you know, but he talks about the fact that as a Muslim, he married a Muslim woman, a Muslim lady, 
uh, from Indonesia. And they have amazing, beautiful boys, but they had twin baby daughters that they thought were going to die. And they ended up living for a while, and then they, they died. And this is what led our brother Shane into a deeper understanding of the spiritual path, a deeper relationship with the divine, and then also into his career as a chaplain. So really grateful, really excited for you to be able to hear this conversation with our dear brother, Chaplain Shane. We're brought to you by Zakat Foundation and Udimentary and Mystic Man Men's Grooming Products. Enjoy this episode of the Travelers Podcast. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. So this is us re-recording because the last time we were talking, we had technical problems and we had a big delay and things like that. Um, So just really grateful to have the chance to sit and to talk again. One of the things that really, I think, brought you into a more national and international um, stage and spotlight was this documentary called Redneck Muslim. And I know before that there was a, a Facebook group called the Society of um, Muslim or Islamic Rednecks, and I know that there's been some some you know changing and tweaking of the name and things like that. Um, but before we get into your history and your story, can you tell us just a little bit what it about that that particular project and what the intention is? Yeah, I finally. So like I kind of have confirmation from Dr. Sherman Jackson that I was given the charge to work on that. I definitely not to call it that, but um, you know, I was at an, an Allen program in 2011, and um, I think it was mostly like folks, like second generation folks, like maybe their parents are Arab or Pakistani. There was like I think one black guy and like two white guys, but Dr. Ja- at this Allen program, but uh, Dr. Jackson was asking these really interesting questions. It was so different than sitting with like a traditional scholar and studying a book. Uh, But he was throwing out all these really fascinating questions to, I think, a lot of really interesting young people. A lot of these folks are college age people, you know, younger than myself, maybe people that could actually take those questions and come up with solutions and, and do something with their talent. But he did ask some questions like, why aren't there white masjids? Or Who's taking Islam to working class white people? Mm. And he mentioned uh, a particular white scholar's name. Uh, like, you know, like I'm, I'm down, you know, talking to the brothers on the street. Why ain't this guy out at the construction site talking to these, you know, he's working. He called him Joe Lunchbucket, like working class white people. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's probably a year or so later I realized, like, you know, I don't consider that I have the knowledge necessary to do that. But. That's my, those are my people. That's not that, that person's not from that socioeconomic class or that background. So I realized like, wow, like, how do you do that? And, you know, we both have a connection to the community of Imam Muhammad. And just looking at the history of the nation of Islam, I was thinking about how Imam Muhammad, uh, may Allah bless him, would talk about how this was, there was strategy to this. This was incremental steps to introduce people to Islam. So I thought, you know, a lot of, a lot of the people from my background, from the deep South and Mississippi, you can't just go straight to them and start talking about some of this uh, Islam. And they would have certain, uh, they're going to have certain knee-jerk reactions, certain things that uh, defense mechanisms or just things that, how do you navigate even having a discussion? So that 
that was, I was just kicking around ideas. Like, how do I even connect to people? And then that name, like society of Islamic rednecks, uh, one of, there was a friend that posted, is there such thing as an Islamic redneck? And this person, I really think they are from that type of a background, a white country background from Georgia, where I consider this person to be a scholar. And then I thought about it and I was like, I kind of, I think I know a lot, several people that are kind of Muslim rednecks, uh, that they're from a redneck family, not that they identify as a redneck. And I've never identified as a redneck, you know, but uh, I'm definitely from a family that uh, I, w- I would say they, they have some, you know, redneck tendencies. And, you know, I, I was born in 1970. So, you know, a lot of our grandparents grew up on farms mm-hmm. and then our, our parents grew up spending some time on farms. And then a lot of us maybe grew up like I, I grew up, you know, Jackson State University is in the, the city that I was raised in. So it's not a big town, but I grew up more in a town. So just the demographics of people shifted so much, too. But uh, I, I was tongue in cheek, you know, that and also it spells out seer like secret. Mm. Right. This is a secret community within Islam that there are these rural white people. You would never think about that. They're Muslim, but there's some really beautiful people where Islam has helped them address some of this racism. So when I called it Society of Islamic Rednecks, I was thinking like more rednecks in recovery or, you know, it was uh, maybe people from certain backgrounds that Islam had helped them, but also maybe getting people's eyes on that, that weren't uh, already Muslim. And so I think the documentary filmmakers, they saw that page, they reached out. I was already really wrestling with the term and saying like, I kind of feel like I need to change I don't want to hurt people with that word. And I don't, and Dr. Jackson had pointed out, I probably talked to Dr. Jackson 30 minutes total in my life, like five minutes here, 10 minutes there at different things. But when talking about the film, he said, you just don't want to use some terms that could be divisive or, but um, for sure, when you put those words together, it gets people's eyes on it. And the film was initially slated to be on country music television. We were really pitching it to country music television, not to PBS necessarily. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, I, it's not clickbait, but for sure, when you put those words together, uh, I think more people would stop and look and say, what, you know, what is this? And at the same time, I think there's some people, they won't look at it because of the name. Like maybe they assume what that's about. Maybe a, a smaller number of people perhaps, but I think there are some people, I think they may have totally misunderstood the title. I was at the um, Black American Muslim Conference in Atlanta in 2019, and I was on a panel about race and uh, in the Muslim community, racism in the Muslim community. And uh, there were all these, you know, beautiful elders from our community. And I I got a lot of really positive feedback because I think people understood what I was doing. There was like a method to the madness, you know. Uh, Yeah. But uh, it's been a wild, it's been a wild ride for sure. You're saying like black Muslim elders seem to have understood better what you were trying to do than a lot of the, you know, than especially a lot of white folks. You said most of the pushback you got was for actually from white Muslims. Especially too, when I threw out this kind of hypothetical question, like, who do you want to see at the white American Muslim conference? Right. Like people kind of flipped out. There was like 400, my friend and I, Ajax, so you know Ajax, uh, another yeah, white absolutely. convert. I love Ajax. Who rides a rides to Harley Davidson, you know, we were, he would say, okay, we're gonna, I, I, I documented, it's like 400 and something replies, but he's like, okay, 
we're going to do a diagram. We're going to see, because part of it was just mapping people's knee-jerk reaction to that. You know, and a lot of people, they were saying, well, there's no, there's nothing a white person struggles with. And it was kind of tongue in cheek, me asking it in the first place. But it was, I was kind of, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I'm trolling people, but I wanted to hear what people had to say about it and what people thought about it. And I'm also figuring this out, but um, some people, this was kind of a, uh, more than one person said, there's nothing that a white convert deals with that a black convert doesn't deal with. Maybe other than them being like racist. And this is white people saying this, but, you know, just, I think we may have talked about this just off the top of my head. I, I thought like, from my experience, uh, you know, a lot of black folks, they have someone Muslim in their extended family. They have a cousin that's Muslim or like me, I never really had any Muslim people in my family. And my family don't really think of Muslims in a positive light because a lot of black Muslim communities, they, they brought some value to those communities from mm -hmm. nation, you know, of course, before the nation of Islam as well, the na nation of Islam is not the first black Muslims in this country, and there's Sunni Muslims in this country, pre-Nation of Islam, but they brought, you know, a lot of people still see that a lot of value was found in knowing Muslims, and white people don't have the history, the social capital of going, the white Muslims didn't go help the trailer park clean up and get off a of meth, you know, like we don't have that same social capital, so just that in itself, like, and, and not to try to baby white people. I think maybe this is what some people thought. Oh, you need a space where no one challenges you as a white person. It's like, that's, that's not at all what we're talking about. We're, we're still calling people to be virtuous people and to stand up for the truth. But for sure, maybe dealing with your parents is a little more challenging if your parents voted for Trump. You know, maybe, you know, it's, you have to handle that in a very nuanced way as opposed to you, you know, writing your family off, you want to respect them. You also want to do what pleases Allah and what serves people and you want to do what's right. But um, so a lot of white people, for sure, uh, mostly white people. Yeah, really. Seems like they, they 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 were very convinced what was the right and wrong thing to do. But it was fascinating to read the different opinions. And because uh, I don't know that I know for sure. I just thought it was an interesting and some people mocked me too, even some white people that I consider kind of scholars. They were kind of talking trash about me. And I was like, ah, I don't know that you really get what I'm getting at either, you know, because I guess some people do think if you're a white person and you become Muslim, all the racism evaporates out of your system, you know, or if you're married to a, <laughs> a black or brown woman, you, you're not racist. Like there's, but this conditioning, and I'm not trying to beat up on white people at all because Part of the whole conversation, too, especially like at the Black American Muslim Conference, was about we're born pure, we're born on the fitra, but we're socialized in this country. Uh, and I don't feel like this is beating up on white people. It's just, for me, it's just what I've experienced. And I am kind of speaking to people in the South. I'm not trying to talk about all white people in this country because there's like different subcultures of people. But in the Deep South, I think it's, I don't know that you're being honest with yourself if you don't say that. People are raised uh, with a certain type of prejudice. So um, it's just throwing out ways about maybe how to navigate this, but not, not trying to uh, demonize anybody. Just quite the opposite. What can we do to open up some lines of communication? And I know I've messed up. Like I, I'm, I, I hate if I've hurt people with the words I've used, but I'm trying to be brave enough just to get a conversation going and be willing 
to make a mistake because this is this is important as a Muslim. I, I don't see how like race relations in this country, how that's not at the top of your list, that things that we we're going to have to work through and that we're really called that our our religion is calling us to work through it and uh, has the medicine for it and has the healing for for people on both sides, that, that there's a metaphysical uh, medicine beyond mm-hmm. uh, might makes right, you know. You know, it's such a beautiful thing that, like, you know, we hear, obviously, so many of us are inspired by Malcolm X. You know, it's interesting, like, Islam is one of those things that really invites people through some of the most challenging circumstances in their lives. Like, most white people that I know that converted before 9-11, they converted because of Malcolm X. And so, like, they heard all of the things that Malcolm said, and it actually attracted us. It made us feel like, yes, this is true. Like there's something very wrong that my soul recognizes. And this man is putting language to it in a way that no one can really argue with. And so when Malcolm gets to the point in autobiography where, you know, he goes to Mecca and he has this, you know, he's no longer directly under the influence of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and basically says, like, if white people would study Islam, it would reunite them with the human family. There's the story of the white woman that comes to see him in Harlem because she heard him speak at in uh, at, at Harvard and says, like, what can I do? And he says, nothing. <laughs> like, she came all the way to see him and she's crying and everything. And he says, I wish I could see her again because I would tell her what you can do is minister to your people. So, so many white-bodied people or white people come to Islam through Malcolm. A lot of people convert to Islam in prison. A lot of people convert to Islam during the month of Ramadan. You know what I'm saying? When it's like, I'm going to come into this new religion and start fasting. And then a lot of people came in uh, after 9-11 because they were you know, looking into it. I had two white people, me and my wife had two white people come to our house when Trump was first elected because they have, were going to have the registry. And they were saying, if... Uh, if Trump sets up this registry for Muslims, we're going to sign it in solidarity, but we just want to have some understanding for like, what is this religion? So we sat there, they sat in our house for like six hours. And at the end, they got up to leave and the husband turned to the wife and was like, I'm going to do this for real. And she was like, what are you talking about? He's like, I'm becoming Muslim today. Like, Like, I'm not leaving this house until I'm a Muslim. And she cried and she was like, have you thought about this? (laughs) (laughs) Um, but man, it's, it's such a beautiful thing that, you know, when, when I saw the, the footage that's in the documentary of you, you know, at a conference, it's an all black Muslim conference. I don't think it's necessarily the one in Atlanta you're talking about. It looks like it's on the, like, uh, somewhere in the Eastern seaboard and, you know, just being really honest about where you're at and really vulnerable about, uh, about where you're at in that, in that journey you know, and um, I just really appreciate that, man. You know, like like seeing that as something that is, it, it, it really, I think, gives permission for a lot of people to acknowledge what's going on inside of us and to try to figure out how to move forward. So I just really, I'm just very grateful for that. Well, yeah, it was, everyone was very gracious to have us in that space too. And I think this kind of, I think the only critique that's been shared with me from black people is one person they didn't tag me in this but i I happened to stumble across them speaking about this saying like why does this guy keep inserting himself into these black spaces you know and from from my understanding we were invited 
to go there when at that conference, uh, it's the African American Islamic Summit, um, because we had filmed some of the documentary, and I think it had sat on the shelf for like a, a year. They didn't really know what what to do with it. We were talking, and I was saying, this conference, this summit is really beautiful. Uh, you know, it, it gives me ideas about how could we have some of these similar conversations within a like quote unquote white Muslim community. You know, but I don't want to go there. I don't know that this is if this is just a space for people to talk about issues for this particular community. I want to be respectful. And I saw they had different, like uh, Yahya Rodas was speaking there and it was open. They, and so I think the, some of the filmmakers spoke with, spoke with them and said, no, they, they want us to come, this and that. So same way with the Black American Muslim Conference. Like I didn't pitch the idea to go speak to them. Like any time I've been in a space, I've been invited into that space, you know, and I don't, uh, other than, you know, doing the, um, the Facebook page, you know, I don't, uh, I don't think I was really trying to push myself as, uh, well, actually I saw early, early on, I did a chutbah about, uh, kind of roughly related to Black Lives Matter, like the son of Black Lives Matter. And it wasn't so much about Black Lives Matter movement, but it was about black people's lives matter <laughs> in our faith. And I put it on the internet and I got put on some blog as like a social justice activist. I'm like, what? Like, I'm not a, what? I, I'm the furthest thing from that. I think like my son sometimes tells me, he's like, man, dad, if, if like conservative people could hear what you say, they would probably be uptight. Or if like liberal people heard what you said, they would probably be uptight. But I'm saying like, we're trying to run this through the lens of our, our, our faith tradition, you know, and Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to take sides and demonize people. Um, but, uh, yeah, again, it's been a, uh, an interesting ride and I appreciate you saying that. Um, and yeah, the last thing I would want to do is hurt somebody, but it's, I, you know, I don't know that there's a model for, for how to do this exactly, uh, to have these conversations, you know. One of the things, you know, you mentioned Dr. Jackson, you reference him a lot and I really love him. And I, I just realized like, I haven't asked him yet to come on the, on this show and I need to do so. Um, I talked to him briefly, not that long ago because his mother passed away. But Dr. Jackson says that when the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said in Mecca, there's no God but one, like there's only one God, that was the most revolutionary and radical thing that somebody could say. And he said, in this time, is it any less radical? Because if you were to say to the average person on the street, you know, all these gods that people talk about, they're really one, like God is one. There's only one source, there's only one creator, there's only one deity. You know, there's not multiple deities that some people have access and other ones don't. Like, there's one God. Most people are just like, yeah, what if, yeah, either that's true or there's no God or who cares or whatever. Like, it's just not a revolutionary statement. So he said, did that become a less radical statement or have we just failed to acknowledge the idols of our time? And among those idols, those, the key ones, you know, being white supremacy, being like this idea that, you know, there are, there are certain people who are the reference point for all of humanity. And when you put it like that, it's one of the things that, you know, really gets to the very heart and the soul of America and what's it really about. And it just makes so much sense that, you know, Black Muslims and, and, and you and I are, are basically from the same community. Like we come from this community that started as a nation of Islam and then when the Honorable Elijah Muhammad passed away, his son Wallace became the leader. And 
moved that community into a more um, theologically Sunni uh, understanding of Islam, but still very culturally black and still very American and still, you know. And so we're sitting, we're, when we're in that community, we're with people that have really deeply tr like plunged the depths of what race means in America. They've had this experience where, you know, from 1930 to 1975, they said white people are devils and God is black. And then had this kind of, you know, major transformation, um, you know, to a more Sunni Islamic understanding. And so this is something that they've been dealing with for a long time, you know, but for white people to work on it and work on it together is something that hasn't happened yet. It's just. Yeah, I think and I think that's part of why I got a lot of pushback from younger people that for I think. Like when I was uh, doing my hospital chaplaincy training, there were some younger white people in there and they hadn't really been around black people at all in their life. And so I would interact with people in a, a little different way. So when I put out that um, that question about the white American Muslim conference, some people they're like, well, the only reason white people should get together is to talk about their racism or, you know, and I felt like part of the pushback from white people some they would also some some of the people were telling me, how dare you try to have this conversation without black elders advising you, basically, or you you don't have the permission to do this. And I've always kind of felt like, see, and now Resma is like I feel like he's he's telling white people go do this, but I realize I don't have to have anyone's permission to go call mm -hmm. my people away from something that's destroying them and other people and that God doesn't want them to do. However, we've both been advised by you, you, I mean, you, you keep bringing this up, you know, about feeling like black people kind of help raise you in a sense on how to navigate life in a more, this is the way I understand it, in a more healthy, holistic way. I feel the same way, like a lot of early music and different things, like uh, seeing Eyes on the Prize on PBS. And um, I, I, I've been, I've been, I've been taking guidance from elders in the black community, I feel like for 30 plus years, you know, so, but I'm not going to try to defend myself necessarily, or try to say, these are my, this is, this is who, you know, well, I talked to Dr. Jackson about this. I've never mentioned that ever, you know, but, um, mm. but I guess it's good that maybe people feel like maybe they have the permission. And I guess I, I, I do hear this with, uh, some white folks that are familiar with Resma's work, like he's maybe empowering, encouraging people to work within their own community. But that's exactly like you, like you said, when I was a teenager reading, like in the eighties, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, he empowered me to do that really. Mm -hmm. But it's a, it's, it's been a uh, quite a journey to learn about yourself and to try to grow as a human being. And that's a, that's a brave man. I mean, he, he, he laid down his life. So, that's uh that's a those are some big shoes to try to even walk in the same direction as him. And I also think of Will Campbell, Reverend Will Campbell, who is a white Baptist preacher from Mississippi, who worked with Dr. King behind the scenes, and then he would go sit with the Ku Klux Klan and try to call them away from what they were involved with. So there there are some models for uh Doing something beyond just preaching to the choir, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of interesting to me too. But, um, uh, 
again, not an easy demographic to strike up a conversation with, you know? Yeah. I know you've talked a little bit about, well, like you and I have talked actually a lot about your own history and your family history. So did you grow up in Philadelphia, Mississippi, or is that where your family is from? That's where my father's side of the family is from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a big, there are a lot of Choctaw Indian uh, people there. And, and if you're from there, you know, you're, I think a lot of white people like to say, well, there's, I'm related. Like, <laughs> I have some relation to indigenous people and, you know, wear turquoise and it's kind of corny, but it is, you know, uh, from what I understand, like my great, great uncles came there from Ireland and they both married Choctaw women. So that, that area is very much uh, connected to indigenous people. But um, in Canton, in Carthage, Mississippi, is on my mother's side. But yeah, all these people were, were farmers. I think they were, you know, you have like 10 or 12 brothers and sisters. You're farming land you don't own, right? You grow a garden so that you can eat. And then I guess you farm someone else's land. You get a, a, a little piece of that that you can sell to buy things that you can't grow. So, uh, yeah, th that's where my family came, came from. I think for economic reasons, just when I, when I was in junior college, our professor asked us in a history class, which I made an A in history. I didn't finish junior college in the late 80s, but history class was really fascinating to me. He asked, like, what's the purpose of TV? And I said, to sell you things? Like, I was the only person that answered the question, you know, or he, he did this experiment with us. He said, raise your hand. If you, if your grandparents grew up on a farm and almost everyone raised their hand. And then he said, raise your hand. If your parents grew up on a farm and it was like less than half the people raised their hand. And then he said, raise your hand. If you grew up on a farm and it was maybe one or two people, I'd like 30 people. So, uh, I think my grand, you know, uh, a lot of our families, they came to the quote unquote cities looking for work and better opportunities because there wasn't much like on these farms. It was like subsistence farming. You're just farming. Like my dad always jokes, like when the Great Depression hit, like in Philadelphia, Mississippi, nobody knew the Great Depression had happened. You're already mm -hmm. eating black eyed peas and cornbread. Like, what do you know about a Great Depression? You know, it's like right. your standard of life has not been affected whatsoever. So, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, I heard my, my grandfather actually, at some point he drove to California looking for work, just kind of cold called <laughs> some relatives, showed up in California. And there was nothing happening there, and they came back to Mississippi. So they were really trying to work it out, trying to find employment and how to, you know, care for their families and stuff. So, and you can you talk a little bit about your relationship with your grandfather in particular? Yeah, this is really interesting. Uh, I think in some of our conversations, you've made me think about this more, and I, I. In the documentary I mentioned, he showed me how to tie a noose, uh, which he was also was like a super sweet guy, like a pretty mellow, generous guy. Well, not well, mellow as long as you agreed with him. I think maybe a, a lot of us can be like that. We, you know, it's uh, I'm realizing I'm like that where, you know, me, me being in the house where no one's getting on my nerves. That's not more important than other people getting to live their lives as well. I just dawned on me like, wow, I'm really oppressing these people in my house. Like, I'm not too bad at it, but I have a bunch of kids. And, uh, you know, I, it just dawned on me like, man, you can't just put you 
your your nerves not being ground down above them getting to be kids too. So, I, you know, I think he was just from a generation like, which I hear this from a lot of people, older people, like you did what your parents said, or there were some severe consequences, you know, like you weren't, right. they weren't that concerned about your, uh, your emotional trauma or whatever, you right, know, like right, 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 it was right. life or death situation. You need to get out there and help us bring these crops in, or we're going to starve to death or, yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. They were just from a different generation. So he was, but he was a good, you know, like with everything, he's not a hundred percent bad, hundred percent good. But the thing about him showing me how to tie the noose, and I think I've talked to you about this. He told me where the civil rights workers were buried in Philadelphia. He said, I forget if it was the FBI, but he said they thought they were over there. Everybody knew they were over there. And I think I'm like 12 years old. I don't know what he's talking about at all. All this is way above my head, man. So um, I don't know if it was Ajax and I talking about, he was like, that was, maybe that was your legacy to inherit, you know, but you weren't really, you weren't in a space to resonate or understand or inherit that legacy, really. Like, I'm the first generation of people to really grow up in an integrated school. And my other friend was telling me, he's like, you know, think about it. This is early. I mean, we're going to school in the mid 70s. People have been pushing back against busing and integration and stuff. So we were at a, a time growing up in a time where things were radically changing, you know, for our families. And because I can remember one of my uh, one of my parents, like in traffic, like kind of a road rage incident may have let like a racial slur slip out, like when I was a five, six years old. And I remember repeating that. <clears throat> and then they would tell me, don't say that. Because I think just things in society were changing so much, like Roots is on TV and you're not just going to be talking to people any kind of way and there not be some pushback. So I think my <laughs> grandfather's really found himself right in the middle of all that. Like uh, we, we did have things came to a head when I was a teenager. I had some white friends over that were strangers he didn't know and he left them in the house. And then I had some other friends coming over. They were going to borrow some some DJ equipment because I DJed when I was a. Uh, a teenager. And he said, well, you have to leave it out on the porch. And I said, you know, I'm not leaving. Some black well, it's like, you know, it's like a four track, it's like a vest tax, uh, Tascam four track or something. But, uh, but it, it got down to, it's like, you know, it's not that they're strangers. I don't think it's because they're black, you know? Mm -hmm. And then he said, mm -hmm. when have I ever mistreated an N word? And I said, well, just using that is kind of, that's kind of problematic, but but yeah, like we came to blows. We didn't come to blows. He, you know, it, it got physical on his side. So, um, and I said, it's really interesting, like uh, how music also just uh, exposed us to so many different ways to think about the world. Because even then I was saying, look, we're all, in, in some sense, we're black people. We're all connected. Uh, biologically, we're all connected. I said it. I didn't spell it out like that, but that was my response to being shoved to the ground and having his fist raised. Because he said, those people have brainwashed you. And I said, look, we're all the same people. And I, and I believe that. I, I Sincerely, maybe I intuitively believe that, but then also through some of this music, we're being uh, introduced to different tellings of history than what maybe we read about in the, in the book in school. But um, uh had I been where I'm at now and had a conversation with him, that conversation could have went very differently, you know, mm. but I'm, mm. you know, a 17 year old or trying to figure it out, you know, and, uh, knowing 
that something's not right. And I love how you mentioned that Malcolm kind of gave like uh, the language to talk about this, because that's a lot what a chaplain does uh, that I'm as I'm learning to be a chaplain. A lot of this is about being quiet enough inside, working on yourself, struggling with yourself, learning about yourself, growing, working through your stuff to where you have some serenity and you can sit there with another person and kind of keep talking to them and give them the space to give a voice to what's happening. All this, all this stuff bouncing around inside them, somehow creating this space where they can speak what's bothering them and then keep listening to them to where they, where they can speak what they need to do. So I think I intuitively, I, I could actually remember being around that age and thinking like, either I'm crazy or all these mm-hmm. white people are crazy. And going through a phase of like not liking white people. Like, this is so not cool. And it's like a vicious cycle because some, of course, some black people are not going to like white people. Some older black people are not going to like white people because of what they've been through, right? right and so maybe right. you get people pushing back and forth on each other. I can also remember being younger and I'm going to give every black person the benefit of the doubt. Every black person is beautiful and they, they love me just like so many other black people. They're open and they're forgiving. And, you know, everybody's working through their, their stuff. So it seems like a vicious cycle, man. It's like um, because maybe some people, they have a bad experience with somebody and then they say, OK, all black people are like that or all white people are like that. So um, it's so fascinating that being Muslim that we cut through so much of that just from the jump that you meet somebody and you're uh, you're you're several steps closer to trying to deal with each other just on the basis of who you are as opposed to how you present you know We consider it a real honor and privilege that the people that support this podcast that we advertise for, these are people, individuals, institutions, uh, companies, services that we know and love and trust and that, thank God, they know and love and trust us as well. And so it's an extension of the podcast itself. You know, these are people that I would love to talk to on the podcast. They have amazing stories. They're doing amazing work. Uh, It comes from a real place of intention and purpose for them. And... You know, some a group that supported us from the very beginning on, on the Travelers podcast has been Zakat Foundation. Z-A-K-A-T, Zakat, is the principle and pillar of the Islamic tradition of giving back. And what it means to Muslims is that, you know, we, we strive in all of our days to be people of integrity so that, you know, the, the things that we believe are in alignment with what we look at, what we eat, what we wear, what we spend our money on, what we spend our time doing, what we talk about, what we won't talk about, what we say, what we will not say, um, the ways that we love and serve and operate. We also want it to, to be a reality in our financial uh, situation. We want our money, our provisions to be stuff to come from places that we believe in and that we support. You know, we don't want to be hypocrites in the money that we make. It's also acknowledged in the Islamic tradition and really in all of the spiritual traditions that are emergent and holistic that um, it's it's almost inevitable. You know, the, while that's a lifelong pursuit, 
it's it has to be lifelong because of the fact that it's almost impossible to ensure that all the things that we're doing are ethical. And the further on we get into the mod- modern world, it becomes even more and more complicated and difficult, which is a whole other conversation. Let me talk about what I'm here to talk about. Zakat Foundation is, uh, you know, a group that is dedicated to giving. And so when we give Zakat, what we're our intention, what we're striving to do is actually to purify our provisions and our resources by giving, by sharing, by supporting people and by supporting causes that we believe in in the world. And Zakat Foundation is an organization, an institution, a global humanitarian group that gives us opportunities to do that in ways that are really dope. Uh, Again, these are people that I know, love, and trust, and their work is incredible. It's a Muslim-led organization, but they don't only help Muslims. you know, in programs like their um, orphan relief and support program, 100% of the pro- of the proceeds, 100% of what we give, it only takes $50 a month to support an orphan completely for their food and shelter and security and safety and education and well-being and all of the above. $50 a month to take a person who has nothing and give them and supply them with everything they need based on the help of the Zakat Foundation. And for that program in particular, Zakat Foundation does not take any of that money for advertising, for salaries, for overhead. When you support orphans in that program, 100% of what you give goes directly to orphans, $50 a month. It's like, that's amazing. You know what I'm saying? And I'm sure sure if you listen to this podcast, you've heard me talk about that program because it's really innovative and really beautiful. But they have projects all over the world. So uh, on social media, you can follow them at Zakat US. Um, You can check out their website, zakatfoundation.org. And find something to support. Find a way to give. So many of us are wrestling with things like depression. And depression is really real. And one of the things that all of these therapists in my life really echo and they're in unison and talking about this is that when we're feeling challenged or overwhelmed or depressed or anxious or nervous or scared or self-conscious, helping others is the most direct and immediate way to relieve some of the pressure, to relieve, to just, to, to, to lighten the load a little bit of all the stuff that we're carrying. You know, it really... The, the reality of us being purified and being healed by sharing, by giving, by loving, by serving in all ways, not just with money, but money is one of the, the really tangible and important ways to do it. So head to Zakat Foundation, check out their work, find something to support and know that we're very grateful to be in partnership with Zakat Foundation. One of the things we talk a lot about on the Travelers Podcast is that the daily rituals and just kind of mundane practices that we need to do to get through our lives can actually be elevated to sacred, spiritual rituals that really beautify and add meaning to life just based on the intention that we hold for them and the attention that we put into them. Um, aesthetic beauty, when it's done with uh, this intention, actually reminds us of the world of meaning. It reminds us that the, the world of forms and the things that we do is really being driven by, is being powered by, is being animated by the metaphysical reality of truth and justice and love and service and mercy and grace and all of these related things, you know. So if our daily lives become rich with these beautiful and beautified uh, rituals, 
then it actually keeps us in remembrance of and it keeps us searching and longing for uh, ways to be more beautiful and more present and more loving. And so, you know, we partner with a lot of these programs and projects and services that our friends do to, to encourage that. Mystic Men is one of those companies. So uh, my brother, Justin Mashouf, is a b-boy documentary filmmaker. He's an Iranian-American brother, Muslim brother. He's a dad and husband and just beautiful dude in general. One of the sacred, ancient ritual elements of uh, the culture that he embodies and that he inherits and that he shares with us is cedar. And my man Justin has created a whole line of men's health care, hair care, specifically beard care products that are based on cedar, which has healing properties, which has spiritual properties, which has historical and religious significance to uh, a variety of communities and cultures. Um, Mystic Man products are infused with cedar. And one of the things that's really dope and beautiful about it is that when you order their products, you get a handmade wooden comb for your beard. This stuff smells amazing. Uh, like I said, it's, it's, it's done sustainably. It's, it's, uh, it, it actually encourages the health of the skin and the face and the hair. And it's just beautiful stuff. So head to mystic-man.com. When you get to the checkout area, just put in travelers and you'll get a little something off it because of the fact that you and I are cool like that. And show your love and give support and just check out this line of products. Justin is somebody that does this as a real service because he believes in it and because it's something that he inherited from his cultural, from his elders, that he's seen the beauty in and wants to share with us. And so we're grateful to be working with Mystic Man Beard Care Products. You know, you mentioned music, and one of the things that, that we've come to really understand is Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah wrote this paper called Islam and the Cultural Imperative. And what he argues in there is that if you want for any kind of social change to be made, there really has to be culture created around it. And music is obviously just one of those factors, but it's a really powerful one, you know, especially in our culture and especially our generation. But really in America, you see that all of the major changes that have been made, you know, starting in our parents' generation, all of these major shifts that have been made in society, really music is at the forefront of it. And it seeing, you know, white people being exposed to, you know, all of the, the musical production has its origins in Black American music. And then that gets exposed to the broader culture in, in, in different forms. Uh, you know, white people kind of take it over in, in, at different stages, depending on the art form. So by the time white people hear rock and roll music, a lot of them were hearing it with white people doing it. Whereas when hip hop came along, you know, we were being exposed to the the community of people that created it. We were hearing all of these different representations of of life and joy and pain and sorrow and crime and sex and storytelling and all of these things that we're hearing from these like variety of voices. Um, and so I just wonder, like, what when were you first exposed specifically to hip hop and were you already 
um, you know, were you already in a group of of black friends at that point? Or did did the music come first? Did the friendships come first? How did that work for you? And what was that exposure like? Yeah, that's that's interesting. No one asked me any of these things. And I think uh, it, it helps me. You know, you're being my therapist, my chaplain right now. So uh, I, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thinking about this, actually, um, in the documentary, I said I really didn't have black friends until high school. But I think I really just didn't have any close friends until high school. As I reflect mm-hmm. on it, it's like it's not not that I uh, because I think I grew up in a neighborhood that was slowly there were black families moving into the neighborhood and the street I lived on. There was like um, a field and then it was like a black neighborhood subdivision number two in uh, in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. So. Um, um, I think it's all happening at the same time, because really in, in Mississippi, I and I realized I shared a playlist of songs with you that I said, mm-hmm. please listen to these songs at some point and you'll understand who you're talking to better because. And I realized like some of these like Doyle Bramhall II's on that playlist and I JJ just listened Gray. to that. Hey man, he, yeah, he's dope. That yeah, was and dope. I realized like Mashallah. a lot of this is more blues than I would like to admit. For me, it's kind of like this is kind of country and funk and but it's it's really a window into the South, really, that and that unlike other parts of the country, white and black people, working class people, we've been rubbing elbows with each other for a long time. And the culture starts to kind of bleed together. Like I grew up eating gumbo and, you know, a lot of things that maybe people would say like, oh, that's appropriating like soul food. It's just like, that's just what people, that's what we just grew up eating that. That was just food, normal food. So um, it all kind of blurs together for me. But really, I think it was in 1984, I heard Run DMC on a jukebox, probably at a pizza hut or something, I think. But uh and then I was I was playing uh, King Cut like word of mouth for my son the other day because he was doing some silly meme with cheese and I was like, no, you have to take a sample from this talking about DJ Cheese. Don't let your fingers get soft. Scratch up the beat. Go off. Go off. So I got that. I think that was in '84. Mr. Magic's rap attack. Because in Mississippi, you had very limited access to hip hop music. There wasn't mm-hmm. really a lot of hip hop music on the radio. You may have someone like over the summer, and I guess this. Yeah, it must be happening all at the same time because there were kids, black kids, that maybe they're going to Chicago to visit their grandma, and then they bring back a mixtape from the radio. And they're like, wow, like we never heard. They don't have this at the record shop. A lot of what we only had access to was like Schooly D, MC Shy D, stuff that, uh, you know, maybe regional record labels and stuff from the South or that were distributed in the South. But there wasn't, and there wasn't that much music out on vinyl anyway. Or, or cassette right. tapes, but uh, so I think it all started to happen at the same time. But when I heard Run DMC, I think maybe I heard Hard Times or Thirty Days. Uh, when I found, because I'd I'd probably heard like the show on the radio, because I was I was going I, I was on the bus with, and ha- I guess hanging out with black black kids too, and hearing music and being exposed to music. And some of it spoke to me. I, I thought like my mother really didn't listen to much funky music, but she had a little like there was a Pointer Sisters album that she had. Like I guess this is seventies Pointer Sisters, and you know like Joe Cocker and Doctor John. Like to this day, New Orleans music is the funkiest music to me. Like with piano, mm-hmm. like the meters. Like I think my mother probably would have loved the meters uh, if she would have heard that. But I realized like 
she actually she did listen to some pretty funky music and i guess uh you know some of that some of that early hip hop they were taking you know the big beat from billy squire and they were pulling elements from it's very eclectic so i guess it spoke to me and then also being a creative person and not having the means to like buy a keyboard or this or that to have a a piece of paper and a pencil and to try to do music like to make to write a rap over the uh, the beat of this 12 on this 12 inch like something really spoke to me as well to give me a uh an avenue to express myself and i can remember getting a lot of trouble when my mother would be gone sneaking her turntable out trying to learn how to scratch on it and i think i saw wild style uh and then the, it was over man you know i saw I think it was on TBS or something, maybe in the mid '80s. But I saw Wild Style. It was it was a done man. You know, like yeah. Once you see Grandmaster Flash kids, you know? in his kitchen, <laughs> Grandmaster Flash cutting in yeah. the kitchen is one of the most amazing. Yeah. like it's such a life changing yeah. moment when you just see him yeah. in the kitchen and the way his body is moving and the way his face looks and the way he's manipulating the records and like yeah, that's what to this day one of the most amazing <laughs> things captured on on film. Yeah, I was like, okay, well, we have a record player. Hey, let's and a kitchen. Let's save up our money and get a mixer from Radio Shack. When mom leaves, we're gonna drag this stuff out and we're gonna try to work this out. You know, uh, yeah, that's hilarious. And, I, and it's funny, like introducing my kids into more like classic hip hop and your music and the new like Black Star album. Like, it wasn't very long into this music where being Muslim was also the coolest people were Muslim. The coolest people, the right. coolest MCs. They were they were dropping Arabic phrases and stuff too. So it's like, yeah, post nine eleven, maybe being Muslim looks one way, but back then, like, that's that's what the cool kids did too, you know. Yeah, and all of the people that were that were doing the most lyrically that would really, you know, because obviously, you know, like you mentioned, listen to Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick, and that's extremely entertaining. And you listen to, um, you know these different tales, you know, Schooly D and stuff like that, like hearing all of these like street tales and things. That's all really amazing stuff. But there was something about that first kind of like cohort of MCs that really just changed what was possible with lyricism. You know, Rakim and Big Daddy Kane and uh, Chuck D and even KRS-One and people that didn't necessarily identify as Muslim. You still felt like they were in that that category and cohort of people. Kara said, I'm not a Muslim, but to Allah, I'm obedient. I'm not a Muslim, but I do support them. You know, that's the whole kind of uh, thing that like people either were identifying directly with Islam or really making it well known that they had a certain love and respect and allegiance to Islam, sampling Minister Farrakhan and stuff. Where was the first time that you ever, was it actually reading the autobiography that, that you started thinking about yourself uh, potentially being a Muslim? Yeah, I don't know. It's probably in the maybe 89, 90, maybe, because I, 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 I wasn't in school anymore. I went and stayed with my dad in Sturgis, Mississippi. Uh, it's like a super country five. There was a tannery there where, like, you know, people brought their different deer hides. And so it was this big uh, factory that made, like, prepared like animal skins to be made into rugs or for taxidermists where like they're stuffing these animal heads for putting them on the wall. And uh, so I worked there over the summer and I was skinning deer skins all day long every day. There's this giant freezer. We take these frozen deer skins out. Then I have a draw knife 
and I would skin these deer skins all day long, every day. And I would be listening to, I think, Gangstar's first album was out then. I brought, had my, I had a 1200, I had a mixer. And so I would, there's nothing to do, man. Like the closest, like of the Walmart is 30 minutes away. And I think like Starkville, Mississippi. So, but I'm reading, I got every book. I'd read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Then I got all the books of his speeches, right? Every book that was published, every word that I could find that Malcolm X said, I would listen to music, I would work, I would read this. And so, uh, so I, I went, it's a big outing just to get away, do something. I got to, I went to the Walmart one day and I had made a, a medallion a leather medallion because I was at a tannery. There's rolls of leather. There's all kind of you know everything you need to make that right. Uh, and I I tore the cover off my autobiography of Malcolm X and I made a like an Africa medallion but with Malcolm X's face on it. And I'm at this countryside uh, Walmart in Starkville, Mississippi. It's probably 1989. I don't know. We can look at whenever Gangstar's album came out and we would know what year it was. But uh, and there was this family. I think that. Looking back on it, they were probably Pakistani, but uh, the father approached me. He's like, oh, that's Malcolm X. He's like, are you Muslim? I was like, yeah, yeah, I am Muslim. I think I am Muslim. So, uh, And I got to attend, like, I think it was like Eid. I don't know which one, but, and, and I saw these, it just blew my mind. I wasn't ready for what I saw, <laughs> you know? I wasn't, I was pretty sheltered culturally, but... Uh, uh, so I got to go to a celebration. I think there were a lot of Arab people. And so I was like, eh, I don't know about this Islam stuff, but uh, I did try to go visit like, um, I think Imam Muhammad's community when I got back. But, you know, it was probably like 10 years after that, that I actually accepted Islam. Uh, but I, I was definitely already attracted uh, at that time. And I was reading all kinds of books on spirituality too. I mean, pretty much anything I can get my hands on and, in that 10 years, I would go sit with teachers from different traditions and uh, just try to just scope it out and see and see, you know, what was going on with them. But uh, I met this brother, Imam Bilal Hyde from the Bay Area. He's like one of the early white guys, like in the 70s, when different people were going overseas to study. He's a linguist. So he, he studied in Mecca, Medina, and then he ended up in the Sudan for like 10 years. And this, he's like, he doesn't, it seems like he kind of thinks everyone is still stuck in like the nineties where everyone's like all these Salafi wars, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> cause he's kind of more mm-hmm. Sufi, Sufi leaning, but he kind of just kind of stays in his house, sticks to himself. But it's just by, I just happened to meet him at this roomy, there was a roomy festival in 1999 in Chapel Hill. And I lived in North Carolina, but I, I flew or I took the bus, like a 24 hour bus ride or something. Chapel Hill, and it was five minutes of interacting with him. Like I had a Mecca shirt on, and he was he was a chaplain at San Quentin at the time. But he saw that Mecca shirt. He's like, "Man, that that shirt's so cool, man!" Like you know, some of the people I work with, they would love love that. So just his humility, and there are all these quote unquote shakes at this kind of spiritual conference, and there's some arrogant people, man. And one of them, Imam Bilal, like he's reciting Quran beautifully, and one of them said like. I used to think I had to learn Arabic to be spiritual or like all this, this craziness, man. And I, I was just looking at this guy. I was like, this is the only real person here, like super down to earth, humble, whatever that dude is, whatever he is. I want to be like that guy because that seems like the most sincere, 
down to earth person that I've met who seems at peace. I need whatever that guy has. And, and he was Muslim and, you know, we, we got to, you know, stay in touch, uh, over the years. He doesn't really use a phone. So it was like letters, <laughs> like, looks like he's dipping, a uh, a feather in ink, writing this letter, you know, he's super old school, but, um, but, you know, alhamdulillah, I think it was ni- in 99 when I came back from that kind of festival, which I really felt like I, I want to be Muslim right now. Like I wanted to be Muslim uh, there, but I came back to Mississippi and I went to the the, the Imam uh, Muhammad's community and accepted Islam with them in 1999. And uh, I think it was right before Ramadan, too. What an interesting time to convert to Islam. <laughs> Someone who doesn't really know what they're doing or what's up as far as what's being asked of you on the physical plane, you know. But uh right, right. I'm, right. I'm, I'm still working it out. We're still trying to get there, you know. It's amazing that, you know, that community is so underrepresented in the kind of like the national like the the narrative of Islam in America. It really is um you know, because Imam Muhammad himself was just not a person that was built for TV and cameras and things like that. Like if you listen to him speak, like you you almost kind of go through like a half hour of him just clearing his throat and blowing his nose. And it really takes a minute for him to get to the, the you know, to where it starts to connect and people start, Allah Akbar, it takes a minute, you know. Mm. But that particular community really all over the country have been the people that have along with you know several other communities as well obviously but they've done so much and that was a community that when I became Muslim you know also was there for me and I remember the first time ever going to that mosque like they they were meeting in a little house at that time and you know I had heard Aslam Lakum and I identified as a Muslim very similar to you where like I just I was like I'm a Muslim I don't know what that means I don't necessarily know any Muslims I don't know how to how to go about it or what to do, but I, I, when as soon as I saw where Malcolm said, you know, if people in America who thought that they're white, if they would embrace Islam, if they would learn Islam, it would reconnect them with being human again, and they could unlearn, you know, the this this disease of white supremacy and racism and stuff. I just was like, I'm a Muslim, and I my mom dropped me off, and I walked up to the place to the to the building. Mm. And there was a guy who, a, a Native American brother um, named Muhammad Isa, which is interesting because that's like Jesus Muhammad, <laughs> Muhammad hmm. Jesus, you know. Um, I walked up to the building and he said, Asalaamu Alaikum. And it's like the first time anybody that ever said it to me. Hmm. And we both had the real, you and I also have the really interesting experience of really becoming one of the imams in that community. You know, one of the people that's called upon to, you know, lead religious services and give the sermons and, you know, marry people and be there when people pass away and and things like that. What what are some of the kind of reflections and experiences that you have in Imam Muhammad's community? Because I know that that for both of us, that's something that continues on to this day. Well, for me, this kind of took a long detour as far as I kind of, I think I kind of, Dr. Jackson, again, speaks to not everyone has to go be a scholar. We need artists, we Mm -hmm. need poets, we need doctors, we need, you know, we need uh, people doing all types of contributing to this world, alleviating the suffering of this world in all types of way that part of this is informed by their faith, you know? 
So I, I when I came, when I moved to North Carolina, um, and 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 of course in in Imam Muhammad's community, it, you find a variety of experiences with they're like autonomous communities operating. But uh, I kind of moved into this kind of neo traditionalist phase, where I only want to <laughs> study this book. You have to have the ijazah in this text, and and alhamdulillah, I mean there's a lot of I feel like I benefited a lot from that as well. But when I kind of popped out the other end of that, the community that I felt the most accepted in and the most at home with now having kids was Imam Muhammad's community. And so really, I mean, my wife and I got married at the, the you know, the masjid when we, the W.D. Muhammad masjid, uh, when we first moved to North Carolina. And um, But for me to really be more involved with the community, I think it... it had to do with the, the leadership at the masjid too, being open, it, both it, being open both ways. But pursuing chaplaincy is really uh, what really cemented this because to uh, be certified to be a board certified chaplain, you have to get endorsed by some religious community. And so Imam Oliver Muhammad, who is the son-in-law of Kenneth Muhammad. Sheikh Kenneth Muhammad built the first masjid in North Carolina. It was a Nation of Islam masjid, and uh, it's the masjid that I'm going to do the sermon at next week. There's a picture, you know, Malcolm X and, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali have been there. There's a picture of James Baldwin in front of the masjid, you know. so very The historic. day that the fire next time came out, he visited that mosque. Mm, very historic uh, I was, community, you know. Yeah. Um, I just, when I was there at Duke, um, yeah. I just... Uh, spoke with the brother Pierce Freeland mm-hmm. and uh, at at, uh, at Black Space, and they were they were telling me that 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 picture that photograph was taken the day that the fire next time came out. Mm. Uh, Baldwin was in that masjid, and right. Baldwin in that book talks about meeting the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and wishing that he could have embraced Islam and wishing that he could have been in that community, but his experience in Christianity just made it too difficult for him. Right. So the, it's really interesting. This particular, you know, there's amazing, like Suleiman Hamid and uh, you know Isla, and just there's there's communities connected to that for their young people doing amazing stuff. Like Imam Oliver Muhammad, his son Salah Muhammad, uh, Imam Salahuddin Muhammad, like all the imams in the uh, Asalam, which is the sister community, they're all trained as chaplains. They're all professional chaplains, and so I knew. Mm. Uh, since chaplaincy is not that well understood in the Muslim community, when I was doing this process, I really reached out with them. I knew them already, but I reached out and they really, it was a more intense period of being mentored. And like Imam Oliver said, okay, you're going to come start doing the khutbas at the masjid. We're going to, you know, because part of doing the hospital chaplaincy training, you had to deliver sermons as well in the hospital. So I would do the Friday sermon, but Imam Oliver you know, he said, okay, let's, let's take six months and look at this. And so that's kind of how I kind of got endorsed by this, this, uh, that particular community, but also part of it, just like I said, having kids, man. And I, I told my wife at one point trying to, I, you know, somehow I got it in my head. You have to go to the masjid closest to your house and mm-hmm. the masjid I was going to, I just really felt like, man, the people, I just wasn't getting anything from there. I told my wife at one point, I almost feel like I may lose my faith if I keep making myself go here. 
So mm-hmm. I'd rather yeah, drive. I'd rather drive downtown and go to the the WD Muhammad Masjid where people smile at you. They say welcome. You know, <laughs> it's like it's worth driving across town for that. And especially with the kids too, because my kids like usually they may be the only white kid there, but they're like, this is the best. This is my favorite masjid. This is the coolest place. I I'm happy there. And so, yeah, I think it really speaks to kind of what you're getting at. It's amazing how merciful God is. God can take this this person that, like one of the brothers that's in the, we're in a class together, Brother Fareed, that was like the fruit of Islam. And he's an you know, older, older guy from North Carolina. He can take him. He can take me, who my grandfather's teaching how to tie a noose. He can put us in the same room with each other. And we actually care about each other. We sincerely look at each other as as human beings and we from both perspectives we work through a lot of stuff to where we we're brothers you know that's a miracle yeah man. god is extremely really merciful is. you know it really is man you know the the um the community in in minneapolis masjid anur it's just amazing man like you know there's a brother that i was assigned to when i became muslim at at 15 we all entered an imam's training course, which basically was a type of rites of passage program to raise us to be Muslim men. And we were all assigned to an elder that we were supposed to look in on. So there was a brother named Howard Tawab who had been incarcerated. He was a member of the Nation of Islam. Um, You know, he really was deep in the Nation of Islam and really had a very, very deep understanding of that theology. He still had all those books and he still you know, really held that really dear. And I went and visited him. I had to go see him at least once a week. And I had to, you know, call him three times a week. And I had to like hand in a log of like the times that I had called him and visited him. And I had to make sure there was food in his refrigerator, make sure he was eating, all this kind of stuff. And then when Brother Howard passed away, you know, we washed him and, um, you know, buried him and things like that. And that experience along with when my children were born, you know, the there was the Mu'edhan that called the Adhan from that community was a brother who named himself Elijah Muhammad. Like he literally named himself after the honorable Elijah Muhammad. But he came for all of my children when they were born and, you know, recited the Adhan for them. It's just really amazing and beautiful, man, like that, how much a part of each other's, like I was just thinking about like the, the elders in that community, when we went to their houses, when we had when we had a problem in our marriage or something like that, we would go to their homes. And, you know, they came to our houses and they would tell us, like, this isn't a clean enough house for Muslims to live in. Where's your vacuum cleaner? You know what I mean? And hmm. sometimes we would have they, you know, they would come over for dinner or something. And when I was young, you know, when I got married at, at 17, they would come over and teach me how to clean the house and how to clean baseboards and how to get in the corners and clean properly. Like it's just really beautiful, man, these experiences that that people have, you know. And I think to your question, part of what happened is in that kind of hiatus of being very much involved with community, you know, my wife's from Indonesia. I was trying to mm-hmm. learn about Islam. And so when I my daughter's passed away, I get feel like I'm really being invited to explore being a chaplain. I think uh, when I had a chance to kind of re-engage with leadership, I think they really saw that I, I did have a passion for calling, speaking to our people, you know, and I think they wanted to help mm-hmm. encourage that because 
that's something that maybe they it's not really something that they they could do, but something that they mm-hmm. wanted to support and encourage. And so I feel like it's been a really a beautiful partnership. Like my my ideal was like it'd be nice to have a space where we could do this type of work. But I feel like really that's a lot of what's happened that I don't think people know about is this um, like Southern Hospitality Islamic Collective is what the Facebook group's called now. But like I'll work with the masjids where we had like Dr. Suad Abdul Kabir come and do a talk or Haji Nuruddin came and did a calligraphy workshop or uh, Sheikh Mohammed Mendez came and did a sermon. So kind of partnering uh, on different projects and it kind of being a, a space where I told you I did a, like a healing from white supremacy retreat just for white people. It was just a few white Muslims showed up, but I had to go, you know, I had to go in front of the board where it's mostly uh, older black women and and asked to have a whites only event at the masjid, you know, and at they the were black like, masjid. and they were like, honey, please. Please, because they get it. You know, like, honey, please do that. Please, please come get the come talk to these guys. And they were like, "You want us to make some tea and have some cookies? We we can leave it outside the door." And I'm like, "No, no, we're we're good." But uh, so it's also really been a home base to do some of this kind of work that I think Resma is calling people to, and uh, where people just get it, of course, you know. So uh, I don't think people know about that really. Some of the stuff I dreamed about. If we had a space, we could do this, this, and this. That really came to fruition through partnering with Imam Muhammad's communities because some of these communities, they are more geriatric communities. And then maybe mm-hmm. the kind of people who are listening to you or they're going to go to a third space, they're younger people. So it's a perfect fit. These people, these younger people, they don't have a physical space where people are open and love them. And this community, it doesn't have that much young people. So this is a it just makes too much sense, right? I mean, you don't need to recreate the wheel. And again, I also try to lift this up. How mi- how much these folks have sacrificed to have this space for us to even go pray. These The pioneers in this community, what they've sacrificed for us to even go pray. We need to name that, respect that. And I think, you know, I think they, they know that. People can sniff you out if you're just uh, telling them what they want to hear. But I mean... Uh, I think the people that I try to steer in that direction, if they don't already know, try to help them understand that uh, these the pioneers in our community, we really want to honor the sacrifices they've made so we can go make Juma and we have a place to to do this type of stuff. So I, it makes a lot of sense, man, to uh, don't don't go try to open some other space. Just put our pull our resources, work together and. Uh, and try to do what what we know we need to do, you know. Yeah, you mentioned your daughters, and I, I've heard you say that it's one of the most brutal and beautiful experiences of your life. Just wonder what you what you would like to share with the people that listen to this, you know, program about what that experience was for you. Yeah, I'm trying to again. I, I when I talk to you, I say a lot. I'm still trying to figure this out, but. Uh, for sure. I gave a little talk, uh, like an online, like Friday reminder for this group in Texas earlier today. And I was talking about this a little bit that, um, the four states that a human being could be in just kind of narrowing down, uh, that we can be in obedience or disobedience. We could be where everything is going well, or we could be in a, uh, a state where we're being tested. Um, and I was reading some hadith and Quran talking about uh, patience and 
But I, from my personal experience, it's, it's really true that sometimes Allah wants you, God wants you to have a, a, a certain relationship with you. And that happens through you going something, going through some type of test, because we were told at the first ultrasound, there were two babies on the screen. And I was like, is that two babies? And they're like, I can't say anything. We can't say anything. You know, you got to talk to the doctor. Uh, and then we talked to like a genetic counselor and they were, I think they were really trying to get us to have an abortion basically, but they were saying, uh, yeah, we don't think these babies are going to live very long. Like their heart doesn't look fully formed, you know, like we don't think their heart could support them. So they may live a minute or a, 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 an hour or a day. Um, but you know, when you're in that situation and your back's up against the wall, no one can say any, there's nothing anybody can do to help you, you know? And so some people, they fall apart. They totally lose their faith. And then some people, uh, they take a different route. And I, was, I remember this was at a time in my life, we were reading the Creed of Imam Tahawi, like this early work on theology. And there was a, a story told, uh, connected to this, about this farmer that their, the horse ran away. And the neighbors were saying, oh, that's terrible. And the farmer's like, well, just wait, we'll see. Then the, the horse came back with some other wild horses. And they said, oh, this is great. He said, well, just wait, we'll see. And then the horse, his son broke his leg trying to tame the new horse. And they said, oh, it's terrible. I'm like, well, just wait, we'll see. So, you know, all this stuff pans, happens like this. And, you know, us kind of talking about that we believe in a universe that's uh, it's not just an accident and it's not haphazard. There's a merciful, there's, there's a creator to this universe that's merciful, that wants good for us. And we also believe that there's life beyond this life. There's, a, there's another life. And so sometimes you can look at what you're going through through a microscope, and it could be really trying. But it's, it kind of taught me to kind of toggle between looking through the microscope, then looking at the telescope, looking at the big picture, that um, there's so much comfort in our tradition about children that pass away that they're going to pester God until you get into heaven. And there's a lot of beautiful things, but um, it really helped me understand a lot about myself. And it's funny when they told us, I was usually be pretty melodramatic, but when the doctors told us, we don't know that these kids are going to live, it really didn't rattle me. But I just thought, well, we have to do, we have to support them, care for them, do whatever we can for them. And then the rest is in God's hands. And I think really reading that theology, I think it kind of primed me to take that hit. Um, hmm. And then, dude, I've sat with hundreds of people where their parent is dead in the room, or they're holding their their baby that passed away in their arms as a chaplain. And I never would have done that. I never would have been there for people like that without what I've been through. So, of course, when you start getting older like us, you can look back and say, you know, yeah, I was that was tough, but that put me right where I need to be. Uh, so thank God for Islam to look at things. Even when I was younger, when I was Muslim, I was like, I'm not sure. Even if this isn't real, I just feel more healthy psychologically. And the world just is, is even just looking through life through this lens. It makes a lot more sense. I'm a lot saner, it feels like. So I do believe. But uh, for sure, even something like that, as hard as that was, there's so much beautiful things that have come out of that. And relationships and us getting to understand, have some inkling of where someone's coming from and so many 
doors and opportunities to serve. Like there were some kind of famous speakers in town one night when I was doing my hospital training. You'd have to do these 24-hour shifts in the hospital where it's like a 900, close to 900-bed hospital. It's usually a dozen chaplains covering it during the day, but on the weekend, we would work by ourselves. Uh, we would take turns working by ourselves for 24 hours straight, and you would just be running back and forth. This, this, this happened. This person's in came in in a car crash or they shot, you know, all this stuff. And uh, someone said, there were these scholars at the local masjid. And uh, my, my friend was talking to me. He's like, man, you really miss it. You're like, you're really missing out, you know? And I, I, I would have liked to have been there and heard their talk. But then I realized like, man, I'm right. I'm someplace special, man. Like it's a, that environment where you constantly get to serve people or be there for people one after the other, after the other, like, it really made so many like hadith and verses from the Quran make a lot of sense to me. Like the way people have explained it, it really didn't make sense. But looking at it through the lens of actually being in the trenches and trying to be there for people, it just shed a whole new light on a lot of things religiously too. I felt like I learned so much uh, about my myself and my faith being in this kind of uh, inter of all places, kind of this interfaith chaplaincy uh so yeah and i feel like i learned something still every day working as a chaplain in university too you know so uh, you know the christians would say i felt like god called me to this whereas i never heard a muslim say that but yeah it feels like life the way life has unfolded it's really just led me to this and uh it's it's been a beautiful and brutal experience what was the the you know so something that I come back to for people so often because I think it's one of the things that's really lost in modern society and one of the things that I love so much about our tradition you know is just how hands on we are with the realities of life that like we're there when each other's babies are born you know I've I've you know delivered uh, you know three of my four children. Um, you know, we're there, like we slaughter, we don't do it all the time, but I mean, part of our religion is that we hold animals in our arms and we slaughter them. And it's like, if you're going to eat meat, this is something that you should probably experience and do. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a brutal, beautiful life, you know, to hold, to do that. And something about washing and burying people as a community, there's something so beautiful about that that just shows well like when you said this when i heard you say this about you know your your daughter's uh you know passing and being born and then passing away and burying them and going and visiting them the beautiful and brutal nature of of life can you share with us what it was like when they actually passed and the just the kind of communal experience of washing and burying them well you know i was definitely more prepared to do an immediate funeral, but they, we did hospice care for them for like a month. Like, I don't think anyone expected for them to like to live a month. So we ended up spending quite a bit of time, you know, spending some time with them, more time than what we thought. But I was just thinking about this because you know, brother Ajax and you know, brother mm -hmm. Abdullah and they mm -hmm. were both there. They actually washed my daughter's body because my son, Adam was a, like three years old at the time, his mother was being consoled by some of the sisters in the community. And a lot of these people were, they used to be uh, uh, part of a, a, well, 
<laughs> a lot of these people are kind of ex-Murabi Toon folks. Really interesting. Some of the people that we met here, people of uh, Vicar, you know, and uh, so those, it was really interesting that, that, that our daughters passed away. I think it was like 630 in the morning. And then our house was full of people, you know, people in there, you know, combing my wife's hair, holding her hand because she's her family's on the other side of the world in Indonesia, you know. And then I'm I'm concerned. Well, what if my son wakes up? There's a house full of strangers. He's going to flip out. So then Ajax and uh, Abdullah watch my daughters and they say like, because as they're Nadir and Husna, my daughters, as they're, they grew too big for their heart to support them, they couldn't really oxygenate their blood. So they were kind of a little bluish, right? So they said that they, as they watched them, they were like, uh, you know, the color came back in their cheeks and they were kind of, it was kind of a kind of a, a mystical experience for them, you know. It was really powerful. But by like twelve o'clock, I'm lowering my body, my my daughter's bodies into the ground, you know. It's like every door just seemed to open up where everything just fell into place. But um I hadn't really thought about that that much. I like I, I forget when, but recently I it did kind of dawned on me like wow that was really amazing how many people we had at our house and how that all just fell into place where this this happened this happened this happened and i feel like my uh that's what's been happening pretty much my whole life i've been putting my walking up to the edge of the cliff and sticking my foot out into space and the ground coming up to catch me you know uh and, and inshallah we're just keep going back and trying to get clear that we're trying to do what's pleasing to God. We're trying to serve people. And uh, like sometimes I would just put this post on my Facebook, like piety, don't get high off your own supply, you know, right, or right, just, right, right. you know, just, just be, be honest with yourself, man. And uh, so, yeah, what a blessing, you know, I was speaking about gratitude, but uh, you know, people aren't perfect. Uh, and but just, just uh, I really kind of overlooked what a huge mercy and blessing that was at such a trying time for us that we had a house full of people. And <clears throat> we're in an apartment now. You've been to our apartment. But when we had this condo, at least once a month, we would have it full of people, like having, having doing a vicar or having food. And we, somehow it would always be we would, we would invite arch enemies somehow. Like my wife would invite this person, I'd invite this person. We're like, what? That you know they can't be in the room together. And uh, so uh, you know, alhamdulillah, that was a it was a beautiful time in our life too. So uh, hopefully after COVID, we can get back to some of that. Because as you're talking about creating culture, a lot of the music that I that I play around with, it's it's meant to be sung as a group of people. It's meant to be a communal experience. Taking these Appalachian melodies or and putting this uh, you know chants from our our tradition to it. Uh, I've, I've recorded a few things, but in my mind, I'm trying to, I'm trying to do things that we could sit down together and sing together and spend time together and heal together. Uh, and, and pure, you know, uh, be the hands kind of have a little friction, help us get clean. But, uh, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm really obsessed with culture and what's it look like. Like, uh, I love exploring that. Actually, it's really beautiful to me. So, 
One of the things that like multiple religious people, especially Muslims, you know, that have really were, in, were loved hearing Rezma and they went and listened to and, and and read and studied a lot of his other work. You know, they say like, he seems to have like an anti-religious kind of tone, you know, and I see why somebody would say that, but I think that, that he's really talking about the really, you know, common, um, the common reality of spiritual bypassing, which is something that the Islamic tradition warns us about. Like it's one of the the things that happens in religion is that people can use it as a way of, you know, checking out of their of their reality. But what Resma describes so much in terms of people creating culture around anti-racist healing and et cetera is the things that he specifically says, who are you burying? What are your rituals? What are your practices? Uh, who are you rocking and moaning with? Who are you in space with when there's, you know, when this this kind of somatic like bodies being together? And what you're describing is exactly that. And it's something that, you know, we experience in a more holistic practice of Islam. And a lot of this stuff has been lost. You know, a lot of this stuff, when, when we talk about um, you know, some of these practices being brought back in the Islamic tradition that after colonialism, a lot of people abandon, you know what I mean? A lot of people abandon these, these practices. It's something that's, that's, that, you know, that I'm intensely grateful for. It's extremely important that in my life's work, like I've dedicated myself to communicating verbally through uh, the music that we make, the learning series we do, the podcast. We've got literary projects coming. It's so important to us that we're contributing stuff that we believe is helpful and constructive, um, that it's beautiful, that you know we're we're contributing something to the conversation to people, to families, to the culture, to the society that are helpful and that are good. You know, once our life's work becomes content and viable and sellable, you know, then all of a sudden you're in this marketplace that's rewarded for doing certain things and not for others. You know, we talked about, we talk about this a lot actually, but, you know, if, if we're talking about things that are contentious, things that are polarizing, things that, that people love to argue about. I mean, you get a lot of attention for doing that. The social media platforms, they really reward you, you know. Um, sometimes people will come in my comment section and they'll say something contentious and someone else, maybe they'll diss me and then somebody else will come in um, defend me and then they'll have an argument and then someone else will jump in it. I notice that immediately those posts become the most uh, um, engaging of all of my posts. And we see now, we've learned now that social media, it's not just our own suspicion, but social media really is constructed to reward that because it just gives attention to the, to the advertisers. It's really important to us that when we're talking about these things, we're not trying to benefit from people arguing with each other. We're trying to build connection between people, even people that we don't necessarily agree with. We're really trying to highlight what's best in us all, the shared humanity in us all. That feels like something that at the end of my career, the end of my life, I could feel good about. And my partner in Travelers Media, Brendan BK1, 
Brendan Kelly feels the same way. My DJ, Last Word, feels the same way. The people that we work with, that we partner with, the people on this podcast, this is the vibe that we're on. This is our intention. Um, and so it's cool to have social media to be truly independent. In order to do that, we have to really be truly independent. Um, I'm very happy that the people that support our work are the listeners. That's you. You know, we've got these these partners, but really you're the one that does it. These partners, you know, might go and they might come. The 20-year the constant for me has been the people that support what we do, and that's you. And you absolutely have a role in shaping what comes out. You know, the output is is really shaped by you and your response to it and your support of it and the way that you engage. So I say all that to say, I don't want to have to even rely on social media to talk to you and to connect with you. So if you go to brotherali.com, there's a mailing list. And I've been on people's websites and they're like, sign our mailing list. And I'm like, nah, I don't want to start getting 100 emails from you every single time you make a new tweet or something. But I'm really intentional about the fact that I write these posts and I write these emails myself and we only do them when we have something that we think you might be really interested in. Um, you know, new tour dates and new learning series and new music and exclusive vinyl and exclusive merch. We just did one for the Uncle Sam goddamn anniversary merch that we put out and got a really great response for that. So thank you to everybody that supported the uh, Welcome to the United Snakes, Land of the Thief, Home of the Slave uh, shirts and jackets that we dropped. We got a really great response for that. So head to brotherali.com, sign the mailing list. The other thing that we have there is what we call a caravan, which is a subscription service that people can support. And then there's also unique ways to connect. There's unique content. There's extra content there that comes directly from me. And the main thing that really excites me about that, it's a lot of exciting about that, but one of the things that's really amazing to me is that on that upper level, we've got a Slack group, a Slack channel, so it's an app that you can come on and people can communicate with each other. And we are building a small community in that Slack app so people can check in and leave voice notes and listen to each other's voice notes. There are people in that group that come from different walks of life that wouldn't know each other otherwise. And the level of conversation has become really rich and really deep and really meaningful. And, you know, I'm learning from all these different people and I know that they're learning from each other. And it's a really beautiful thing. So head to brotherali.com, sign that mailing list, uh, check out the merch, check out the upcoming shows, check out all the stuff that we have there and see how you might feel about joining that caravan on one of the levels. And we're very, very grateful for your support. And we know that we, this work that we do, we really owe it to you. You know, just to, to, to stick with this communal kind of practice around, mm. around death and dying, in, in Turkey, you know, there's a mosque every three blocks. Like every right. little enclave right. of buildings has a mosque. And outside of all of them, we have one that's just a block and a half from us. And we moved to Turkey and some of the people are very secular. Some of them are really religious, uh, but we live in this neighborhood together. And there's a tiny little mosque. There's, it's not particularly special or beautiful or anything like that. But outside of all of the mosques, there's these two like marble tables 
um, mm. that are outdoors. And I always wondered, like, what are those for? And about a week or so after moving here, mid-morning when there's not normally a call to prayer, they were doing something over the loudspeaker. And I was with Mustafa Davis at the at the at our local like bakery in our neighborhood. And he was like, oh, they're announcing that there's gonna be a funeral after the noon prayer. And so I went and I stood there with my neighbors. And these are people that have been kind of looking at me crazy, seeing me throughout the last couple of weeks of me being there. Like, who is this guy? What's he doing here? I don't know any Turkish. Um, you know, we're just seeing this person, like we're trying to figure out like why am I here? But there was a funeral and those two tables outside of the mosque, you know, somebody in our neighborhood died and they brought them and they're, they're not in a casket. They're covered with this like green cloth with mm. gold embroidery on it. And everybody comes outside and the family is sitting at the foot of the, of the body of their loved one. And this whole group of people come in you know, and we walk by and the people stand and pray over the body, like make dua over the body. And then the family is standing there at the foot. And so you can console them. You can give them money if you want. You can ask them if they need anything, you know, and then we all at the end do the formal prayer. And like the whole neighborhood is there, you know, and, and um, people are just together very, really immediately. Like this person probably died maybe yesterday. They might've died last night. You know, and the body's been prepared and they're, and they're there. And then afterwards, you know, the people can, go, you can go to the burial site if you like. But just something around this really, you, you know, everybody came outside. Like all of the neighbors come out, even people that aren't necessarily religious, like everybody is standing outside just to be physically with the people in your neighborhood who who lost a loved one. It's just such a beautiful such a beautiful like communal acknowledgement of the fact that like, man, whatever is going on in our lives, this is where we're all going. Like all of us are, all of us are going to die. All of us are going to lose our loved ones. All of us are, you know, dealing with these base realities. And it was just such a, a beautiful reminder of the human condition. Like these, these like, you know, existential human realities that unite people. That like this culture, these people are going through a lot, you know what I mean? And, right. and you know, they, they really do differ about religion. They really differ about whether or not um, foreigners should be moving into these neighborhoods. They differ about all of this stuff. But the fact that everybody comes outside and and is taking part of this. And so when you when you said also like enemies, you know what I mean? Like it's it's not about whether or not you were best friends with this person. You know, like we invite certain people to our funerals in America. Like, you know, certain people are invited. Other people might may or may not. The entire neighborhood is outside, either participating in the religious ceremony or just in observance of the fact that somebody passed away. I love, it's just really powerful, man. I love uh, in Indonesia, uh, you know, I've been there a couple of times with my wife. And uh, like at, at the end of Eid, uh, you go to every person's house and ask them if I've done anything, you know, please forgive me. And they would be like, not kneeling down, but like crying. And like, it's like, uh, it's beautiful. Like even as, uh, spread out as we are in America and even as hard as it is living on opposite sides of town, 
you still have some remnant of that, you know, maybe not to the degree that, that you're talking about in Turkey or that I saw in Indonesia, but it's beautiful even being separated by uh, space and time that there's uh, to some level of kind of understanding each other and being on the same page. And yeah, I, I feel like my kids, we, we saw this stumbled upon, I think it's called the big, biggest little farm or something. We stumbled upon this documentary last night. And uh, it was showing these people trying to take this kind of wore out farmland where they were just growing one type of fruit or something and make it more like an old school farm where they had all types of stuff, like an orchard and all types of animals. And they got, you know, some of the animals died. Like they were, they were saying like, man, this is like a roller coaster ride. Like it's happy, sad. It's happy, sad. And we're like, this is, yeah, this is, it's like, this is kind of like life, right? I mean, uh, and they were saying, I feel like I want to cry. I'm like, it's so, like, it's Bilal, I think. It's like, it's so, yeah, it's, yeah, you maybe, yeah, maybe we should cry at this time. You know, it's okay to do this. But, um, yeah, the, the tradition really, like you're talking about spiritual bypassing, trying to use your faith to escape reality as opposed to helping you navigate it. This is, <laughs> this is part of, we really face this head on, right? I mean, it's not. If God's happy with me, nothing bad ever happens to me. That's not our tradition, you know. So, uh, so many pious people in our tradition, they went through so many tests, but they they went through so much trial and tribulation. But the test was not what they went through. The test was how they responded to it. So that paradigm shift, you know, it's amazing that. Um, yeah, I'm a lot less shocked now when something happens. You know, I'm I'm a, I'm a lot more at ease after dealing with my daughters um i don't know as things happen it's not that i it's not that i'm pessimistic like oh i expected something to happen but i'm just uh a little more in touch with reality you know like there's 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 uh joy and pain sunshine and rain right and it's all i think it's all beautiful man it's uh it, it's a it's an amazing gift to be able to be here and experience all this but if you've bought into uh, things are only okay when I get everything I want, then I mean, that was the first thing religion started. You know, I thought maybe I'll be Muslim, you know, initially. And I started looking at all these paths. I, I realized I was looking for the magic word to get everything I wanted. And I thought that's mm -hmm. what religion was. Where is the magic right. word so I can get everything I want and finally be happy? But as I looked a little deeper, it, a lot of these paths were telling me Happiness lies in being of service to other human beings. And that's not what I thought I was going to find. But once you learn, once you find some, once you're exposed to something that's true, you can't really unlearn that. So I definitely feel like our, this particular path, it gives you such a beautiful way to walk that, that uh, my, my happiness, my peace is tied up with other people's happiness and peace. And uh, there's no escape in that, really. So it's a paradigm shift, you know. You know, we talk about spiritual bypassing, and I mean, the reality is that a counterfeit version of anything beautiful can become a bypass. Like what I, and you know, you and I have talked about this a lot because we both obviously are informed by music that really was made about all, you know, all of these subjects that were going on in life, but the music that really touched us so much was dealing with some of the most harsh realities of life. And 
you know, so me being having this relationship with the music industry in some kind of way, like I'm actually about to go, I gotta leave in a few minutes to go jump on an airplane. Mm. And I'm playing I'm playing at this music festival in um in Alaska. And I'm not gonna say the names of the artists, but I'm playing in between two very prominent hip hop artists, like really big names that if I said them people that I pay attention to hip hop would know. Right. And both of them, I really love their music and I can't wait to see them and hug them. One of them actually is Muslim. People don't know it. I know it because I know his friends where he lives. But, you know, music it really is either the same. It's like it's either about exploring meaning or escaping meaning. And what most people think music is for now and art in general is like for entertainment and to like escape, to just make me happy. And it's like, man, art doesn't make you happy all the time. You're thinking of drugs. You want drugs. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, like art is here to really explore all of the spectrum of all of these different experiences that we're having. You know, so much of this music is born out of a communal sense of healing and really sitting with the beautiful and the beautiful and brutal realities of life. And the same, uh, so many of the critiques that people have for religion, it's like, I'm sorry, you've only been exposed to counterfeit religion. And most people have only been exposed to counterfeit art. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, this, this is art that's been given to you to just pacify you, put you to sleep, not deal with anything of meaning and, and substance and just, you know, do drugs and forget about it all. But I mean, the two go, you know, really hand in hand. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about in the in the in the few minutes that we have left is, you know, a sister in the documentary, a sister that I know and and really love, their sister Majida, who's one of the women. She reminds me of like the elder black women in, in Imam Muhammad's community, and they're not necessarily in Imam Muhammad's community, but uh, Majida is a younger woman, but she's Imam Siraj Wahaj's assistant in Brooklyn. She's one of the people that that runs this big, iconic, legendary, historic mosque in Brooklyn. Sister Majida was saying like, why, how are you going to convince white people to wrestle with some of the things that you're talking about when it essentially means them parting ways with a system that's, that's benefited them uh, materially? And your response to her was, to to be a full human being and to be at peace with my soul. And so I wonder if uh, in a few minutes we have left, if you could just really reflect and and you know share what it means to to as a human being, you know, so much of the conversation around justice is dealing with a you know a, a horizontal, um, you know, power dynamic in the material world, you know, taking these issues and really recognizing the very real political nature of them. But what is, but you're somebody, and 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 we share this, that really comes at this from the perspective of, you know, um, an internal reality of a human being and the ability for a human being to actually be transformed, but not just forced by political power, but for a human being to actually reconnect with who we are in our essence. I wonder if you could, you know, share some 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 reflections on the spiritual reality of of healing the the diseases in the world and in ourselves. Yeah, I think this is 
not uncharted territory, but you definitely don't hear about this as much. And it's like we're up against something huge. I feel like we're 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 almost born into a godless world, you know, like the modern world, the way people look at things, it's um everything's dead matter. So there it's not that a spirit animates this, this common spirit that animates this. So if it was, I couldn't brutalize other human beings. I couldn't uh, make money off of destroying this planet. So that's a huge, huge paradigm shift that that uh, maybe people, I don't know. It's interesting. Like sometimes people get all the money that they wanted and then they're still not happy. I feel like it was a real blessing. Like the documentary has been a blessing for me in a way because people like, I mean, uh, to a certain extent, people like attention. So I think doing the documentary, getting a little bit of attention and then realizing like, you know, that doesn't, that's not where it's at either. You know, it's something you can't quite put your finger on that there is a, that we have a metaphysical reality. We believe in the unseen, you know, uh, and for a lot of us, even though we're, this is a maybe, you know, religious country, it's people really don't seem, a lot of people don't seem to live their lives that way and really, really believe in God. Like, uh, you'd mentioned, Earlier, something I kind of related to where I felt like, really, I think I've been worshiping Islam for 15 years, not God. An identity to help me run away from my problems. But I was, I was having a conversation with my son, uh, and I, I think we, we do, it's, it's baked into us to be able to experience this unseen dimension to life. The, the thing that people say, you can't prove that. Well, if you sit down and be quiet and let your what's bouncing around in your head calm down a little bit, you may have your own insight in that there is something beyond uh, what you can put on a scale and weigh. That it's, 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 quali- it's, it's, it's quality, not just quantity. But that's a, that's a huge... That's a huge discussion, I think, because just the world that we're born into. It's not I'm not saying the deck is stacked against us, but if you know the Quran talks about we're we're created to to worship God, but worship with the the end goal to be able to know God, know where we came from, understand. So I think we're really hardwired to move in that direction, but uh and I think maybe sitting down and and uh and being quiet can help with that but uh i think back to yeah when people get all the money they want and then they're, they're still not happy same way with me uh when i met like imam Bilal and i saw somebody I, I thought was at peace you know it's a blessing on one hand we have the freedom to try a lot of different things in this country no one's going to shake their finger at you for you have a girlfriend or you go drink or you know it's not a big deal but you still feel empty inside and you are you're always going to feel empty inside until you have some idea of why you're where you came from and why you're on this planet and really this world whole world is served it wants to serve you understanding that but do you mm. sincerely want to know that you know mm. and, and from my personal experience that's the only thing that will give you any peace exploring that you know uh so that's a great question. 
again, that's a great question. What a huge, what a huge uh, thing to 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 end with. But again, the culture. I mean, I I really appreciate having resources. You've mentioned some different teachers that with their writings. I'm hoping to publish some of the writings I've done in grad school because everything in grad school I've kind of brought it back to wrestling with this, like uh, how to navigate, you know, religion and this and this culture and identity and being a white person. Like, uh, how do I honor uh, honor uh, my faith and navigate reality skillfully. So, uh, again, back to, I think a lot of the, the signpost of how we navigate this is, uh, through some of the books we've talked about, through some of the music we've talked about naming the, uh, the struggles and lifting up the hope, uh, because yeah, really, if it doesn't contain uh, lifting up hope for people, uh, it's it's a it's a hard it's a hard road to walk, you know. I wish that you know Allah unfolds our lives the way that He does, but I just think about what a different what a different person I could have been in high school if I would have known you. <laughs> you we would have gotten I mean? all kind of trouble in high school, but uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was saying. You started your Islamic journey earlier than me. You started your Islamic journey when I started my musical journey. And then when you started your musical journey, I started my Islamic journey, basically. It's a, right. The timelines yeah, are flipped. Flip. But uh, yeah, for sure, to have someone else to kind of, like I say, when I'm a young person thinking I'm crazy or everybody else is crazy. That's a lot. We're, I think we're, now we're living in an age where, and maybe because people, human beings have got to interact with each other, we've learned about each other more that, oh, what I was socialized into, that doesn't resonate with what I know in my bones. In Arabic, we call, you know, we call it the fitra, like, I think uh, there's plenty of people that um, that their gut is telling them what I've tried is not working. I need to look for something else. And it's something that you can't weigh. You can't put your finger on. I can't prove it to you, but I know it when I encounter it, you know. So, it, you know, inshallah, uh, it's through God's grace and mercy that that uh, that this is happening to us. But, uh, I think if you sincerely want that, then uh and inshallah you'll be blessed with it I appreciate you man thank you so much don't miss your flight don't miss your flight (laughs) inshallah you have safe travels and everything goes well for you I appreciate you I'll be dropping you voice notes all all along as usual good to talk to you alright okay take care Special thanks to Brother Shane, Imam Shane, Chaplain Shane Atkinson for sharing his time and his wisdom and his his reflections and all of the above. You know, there are a lot of people that listen to this podcast, especially in the Muslim community, that are very well aware of Chaplain Shane and his work. But a lot of you guys won't be. And this is one of the things that I just feel so grateful to be able to do is to just just to just share these dope ass people that I know. So that now you know that we've got this big brother out here in the world just being dope and living life and trying to figure it out and creating spaces for us to do that together. Uh, So much respect to Chaplain Shane. Uh, Check out the documentary that was made about him for PBS called Redneck Muslim. You can follow Shane Atkinson on social media so you can see all this stuff and keep 
stay involved and stay up on all the stuff that he's doing and offering. Uh, much love to all of the people that help so much with this program. Mansur Panawala, Amirza, uh, Darian Washington, DJ Last Word, Aida Rashid, uh, Amr Rahman, uh, all of the people that have that have contributed to it. Mark from Medina made the stamp logo, and he's got a super dope line. Check out Medina Hip Hop um, online, and you can see uh, this line that he's done of, of heroes on stamps based on Chuck D saying most of my heroes don't appear on no stamp. So Mark, as an artist, made a stamp with Chuck D on it as a gift to him, and then it turned into a whole line of super dope. Uh, clothing to give roses to and celebrate our heroes. So check out Mark from Medina, and we're so grateful to him for doing the stamp logo for the podcast. My man Ant, you know, we get compliments all the time on the, the music for this podcast. It's actually a song of mine. It's a Brother Ali song called The Travelers uh, from our 2009 album, Us and Ant, produced that entire album and allowed us to use that uh, music for this podcast. So shout out to my, my dear brother Ant. Um, yeah. I think that's everybody. There's always more people. Uh, Amr Rahman, Aida Rashid, Darian Washington, people that just contribute to the show in ways that may seem intangible to them but really do help a lot. Um, Traveler's Podcast is produced by Brendan Kelly, a.k.a. BK1. Make sure to go and check out all of his work. He's done incredible work as a DJ, as a producer. Uh, hope that he'll come on. But check out Radio Del Canabal, which is an album that um, BK1 produced along with Benzilla. Uh, I got a song on there with Scarface that I'm super proud of and, and very grateful for. Also check out his project called Bones and Beaker. Uh, he's just done a lot of dope stuff throughout his life, so check out BK1's work as well. Uh, produced by BK1, and this podcast is a production of Travelers Media. Much love to you all. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.